welcome to Decision Space. I'm Jake. And I'm Brendan. And today we are going to do something a little bit different. We are going to be talking about Decision Space as a term. Probably this is a good opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about the format of the show going forward. Uh, So our thought is... We'll talk about games, of course, primarily, and then every third or fourth episode or so, we're going to do a topic-focused show where we're just going to be talking about some topic in gaming. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds perfect. I think those topics in gaming, too, could range anywhere from talking about definitions like this episode to talking about game design ideas to, to really really anything under the sun, maybe games we're enjoying, games that got us through the pandemic, that sort of thing. So it's really going to be sort of a, a pinch hitting option in our schedule. Pinch hitting is a great way to describe it because for us, that provides some relief to uh, do a show, hopefully put something out there that adds some value without uh, feeling the pressure to make sure we're really playing a game a bunch of time and doing our due diligence. So I think this will also, in a way, improve those game focused shows. Definitely. And it'll also, we're going to start announcing at the end of each episode what games we have coming up. So it'll also give y'all time to potentially jump in on the next game we're playing in the cycle. Awesome. Uh, So I think what we're going to call these is our What We Talk About episodes, uh, which is a a shout out to uh, the great, great short story writer Raymond Carver and his collection What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Uh, So this episode is going to be What We Talk About when we talk about decision space. So you'll hear uh, myself, a you know passionate game player and consumer, and Brendan, a game designer, talk about decision space and try to define that term, uh, which is something we'll be coming back to again and again in our future episodes. Awesome. This is a discussion I'm really, really excited for, Jake. And I, I feel like there's no better place to start than just jumping in at the definition. So I know I prepared something, but how do you define decision space? So I also prepared something, but before I shared mine, I actually did a little bit of research because decision space as a term is something, I don't think there is a really great consensus definition of exactly what people are talking about when they say that term. So I thought it would be good to kind of turn to some outside sources outside of the board game hobby to see how people refer to this term uh, in the literature. So is it all right with you, Brendan, if I share a couple of definitions for decision space I found? Yes, let's go. Okay, awesome. All right, so this first one is from Roman, Cleary, and McIntyre in their 2017 uh, paper, Exploring the Functioning of Decision Space, a Review of the Available Health Systems Literature. So decision space is a term used to describe the range of choices or authority and responsibility which decentralized organizations, I'm thinking about that as the players, have been granted by central authorities, that would be the game, to make decisions about or influence a range of functions and resources. Awesome. That I, I feel like that translates so perfectly to games. I do too. Uh, and so that's interesting because that's from like health policy and management, like kind of an organizational thinking. And yet I think it does fit in well. Uh, and then there's one more that I actually, this one I like even more. Um, and this is from... Klein, Plath, and Drury, a 2009 article that was presented at a conference on artificial intelligence. 
A decision space is defined by the range of options at the decision maker's disposal. For each option, there is a distribution of possible consequences. Each distribution is a function of uncertainty of elements in the decision situation, how big is the fire, and uncertainty regarding executing the course of action defined in the decision option, what percent of fire trucks will get to the scene and when. Wow. That's... <laughs> So someone needs to make a fire truck game about decision space, obviously, but there's so many uh, keywords and phrases. So that I think are really important highlighting from that one too, like range and dis at the decision makers disposal, possible consequences. These are so, so exciting, Jay. Thank you so much for finding these. Of course. Yeah. And, and so I, I tried to use those to come up with my own for the context of board games. So this is what I came up with. So this is like my sort of critical definition for decision space in board games. And it is the range of perceived viable options mm -hmm. available to the decision maker at any given moment. Amazing. I really like how concise that is. Can you dial down on viable? Yes. And well, why don't you give mine first? Okay, great. Mine is decision space represents the quality, breadth, and depth of opportunities for players in a game state to make meaningful choices that affect the game and its outcome. That seems really good too. And I think I think we're very close here. Yeah. So the thing that you said that I think is really important, I was trying to like figure out how to squeeze it into mine is like it has to have an impact on the game. Yep. I definitely agree. I think I, I've been toying with this idea. I knew this was going to be a topic that we were going to discuss and toying with the idea about the difference between choices and decisions. And I don't know, I, I'm curious how this definition will bounce off of you, but there's certainly games that present players with choices that don't have consequential difference in the outcome. And I would argue that those might not actually be decisions. Yeah, I think, and, and maybe like, you could say choosing your player color, right? That is a choice. Yep, totally. Yeah. That's a great example. Or like making any choice in tic-tac-toe for two players who understand how to play tic-tac-toe. Tic-tac-toe is, is a game of no decisions. There are only choices in tic-tac-toe. There aren't decisions. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, that is getting at why I chose to include the word viable, viable. in mine. Yeah. Because, and, and importantly, I, I said the range of perceived viable options. Because when you're first learning tic-tac-toe as a child, yeah. you know, you do have choices because you're still figuring out the game. You know, in that case, if you don't know what's going to happen, then that is a real decision to you, which in my mind is all that matters for this. I think that that's, that's perfect. That is, I completely agree with what you're saying. And I think that's one thing that's really interesting about discussing decision space in general and why it, I think it will it makes such a good lens for the show because decision space is I love that your definition is from the perspective of a player as an agent within the game. I think mine was trying to look at the term specifically more abstractly, but it it's almost more useful for it to be from the perspective of the player because decision space is a sliding scale. Like you're saying tic-tac-toe there's tons of decisions for little kids until they understand what it is and i think that that concept applies to lots of games as you begin to explore them i agree and i think for me as i was just grappling with this question i, I kept coming back to the idea that decision space is in the context of board games of course is subjective and and, and that means it, it can change over time so for example a lot of games have an issue where 
they don't hold up to repeated plays mm. because people begin to to figure out what is op- optimal. Uh, so when you talk about games, uh, and I don't know this to be the case for myself, so maybe somebody can disagree, but I've heard that a lot of people have a criticism with the game Puerto Rico in that like the first X amount of terms are mm. scripted. You have to carry out the same order of actions or else you're just going to be throwing somebody uh, a, a big giant advantage because that's already been worked out. So at one point in Puerto Rico, in everybody's journey with that game and in the larger competitive meta of that game, that decision space, the beginning first few turns of the game was bigger than it is now. And it has now constrained as people learn more. So I just think that is just an interesting, interesting thing about this, right? It's it's always one moment in time. Definitely. And I think for people saying, I think that based on your response about Puerto Rico, which makes a ton of sense, um, we have to assume that people are, that we're primarily, excuse me, talking about ortho games. So games or, or contests, meaning games that people are playing to win and that they are all players participating are trying to win those games, right? So the there are still choices or decisions that players could make in Puerto Rico, but if everyone wa- is playing to win the game, there's an agreed upon meta that says that you can't, that those choices at the beginning aren't really decisions anymore. You have to play the book. So I think that's another important assumption that we have to mention for listeners coming at this. We are assuming that everyone at the table is playing to win, which is a pretty baseline assumption. But it has to be said. Yeah, actually, that's a really, really good distinction because without that, certainly the way I'm thinking about this falls apart. Yeah. I also think, though, that while these kind of critical definitions of which I think we're, we're pretty well aligned, right? There is an element here that is about the number of choices, how complex those choices are the impact those choices have, uh, and then that there's like a subjective element to that. Definitely. So we're, we're aligned, right? And, and all these things, I think, are something we see eye to eye on. But I also get the impression, listening to other board game content creators, that they are not necessarily meaning all of these things, at least intentionally. Because uh, you'll often hear somebody say something along the lines of, I really enjoyed the decision space in that game. And what I think, and this is perhaps going into sort of a lay definition, you know, what we can just understand generally decision space to be. I think what we're talking about is the experience of choice in a board game. Yeah, I think that that's, that's very fair. The The experience of cho- of what. Well, can you say that again, Jake? I think it's the experience of decisions within the board game, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, the only I think decision and choice I'm using interchangeably. Sure. the The only reason I'm saying choice instead of decision, in, or in my definition, is because you know you're not supposed to use the word in the definition. Sure. 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 Yeah. That's <laughs> <fair>. <laughs> yeah. So. So. You know, with my definition, right? I'll say it again. The range of perceived viable options available to the decision maker at any given moment, you know, and I can add on to that to say which results in the experience of choice in a board game. Great. Yep. I think that that's that's super valid. And it hits on those really important points that we pulled from the other definitions, too. I think, like you were saying, the the real crux of it is it's about scale of choices frequency of choices and consequence of choices. Very well said. So I think, you know, hopefully that gives 
some people sort of the idea of, of the kind of things we're thinking about in, in a game we say, you know, when we use that phrase and we're talking about decision space. But I'm curious to go a little bit deeper into that. So the next thing I think it would be really beneficial for us to hop into is when we think of a decision space, we usually think in terms of size, right? So we just talked about, I think that's a really abstract way that we sort of label decision spaces, but it isn't necessarily the most nuanced take on it. So you had posed the question, are there other qualities about a decision space that are important to consider? Yeah, definitely. And I think what I'm trying to get at with that is I think the first thing that people are hit with when they get a new game is like, wow, there's a lot going on. So this is must be a big decision space. Or if it's a small game, there's only a few uh, you know, components and it's pretty reined in and streamlined. You might think, okay, this is small. Like this is a small decision space. But I think there are are these other things that that give that experience of choice a lot more texture. And I think one thing that's, you know, an interesting thing about is, is there a difference in the way you experience a decision space if you're thinking with a more strategic lens or a more tactical? Definitely. So for folks who aren't maybe listeners who aren't familiar with the definitions, the difference between strategic and tactical decisions, strategic being the sort of long-term ability to plan and execute on that plan and tactical being the short-term decisions that you make to bring that plan to fruition, right? So tactical might be in inner turn, specific turn-based decisions and strategic might be at the start of the game, you're making decisions about what you're going to try to accomplish and how you're going to try to accomplish it. And I think that strategic and tactical I don't know, uh, color or texture placed on a decision space can totally change a game. So you could have a game with a really, really, really large strategic decision-making space, but then tactically, maybe you don't have a ton of meaningful or consequential, consequential, oh my gosh, consequential. (laughs) You can't say that word. I can't say it at all. (laughs) Viable. That's the (laughs) viable choices in the game. So something like I haven't played it, but I get the sense that Teamfight Tactics, where you're building a team before the game starts, this is a a computer game, and then you're watching how that team plays out with sort of minimal ability to make changes, would really play into a very strategic game, but not a very tactical decision space. Yeah, that's that's a really good way of putting it. And I think, too, that I've heard people say that, you know, oh, I, I like strategic thinking in game, or I like tactical thinking in game. And I think a a lot of times, too, that's something that just comes naturally to people, like some people's brains and minds uh, are are good at approaching one kind of puzzle and and the other type of puzzle sort of stretches them more. So I also think this distinction is important in, you know, the perception of how big that decision space is, because at, at least the way I see it is a lot of times making tactical choices is more feels to me more puzzly, like unlocking Mm -hmm the most optimal move in a given turn, right? Like if your goal is to, you know, go up the blue track, I'm speaking very abstractly, then the tactics that would be like on your turn, what series of actions can you do that gets yourself the highest up that blue track? And I think that some people can just very quickly look at a board space and see this is the most optimal path, whereas somebody else would have to spend a lot of time, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, working through, each series of choices and in order to come to that same conclusion. So I think, you know, to player A, who just immediately can grok it, that's going to feel like a pretty small decision space. Whereas to player B, that's going to feel 
big, right? It's going to seem like there's more options, at least at the onset, um, before ultimately figuring out what's the the one viable one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think culturally, we have a degree of, I, I don't know that this is true, but I think culturally, there's this uh, sense that games without lots of strategic decision making, no matter how big their tactical space might be, uh, that they have an overall smaller decision space. And I think that's just because generally our brains have a hard time perceiving the scope of that tactical decision making. And usually with tactical decision making in tactical decision spaces, I think that the number of viable options eventually feels reduced and reduced as players get better at the game. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I do agree with what you're saying. And I think uh, what comes into that a lot is sort of this discussion of how many viable paths, different paths to victory are there. And a lot of people like that because it makes the game feel as though it has more variety. You know, if you can do different things and, and win doing that, you know, strategy, it feels bigger um, than, you know, a game like I was thinking of a very tactical game I love is Azul. Uh, there's not really very much strategic element that goes into that. You're really just trying to like most efficiently fill up your patterns, you know, clear clear out your board. This is a, a, a tile laying game. I'm not going to go into how, how to play exactly, but uh, it, it feels very tactical to me. And and in that way, you know, I think a lot of people would say if it's more samey. Mm-hmm. So I, I do agree. And, you know, but at the same time, I've found that a lot of times tactical games to me are ones where the decision space seems to grow, right? Things I thought were not Mm. viable options, I realize are, whereas games that present a huge wealth of options and and paths to go down, as you learn, okay, but really I need to be doing, focusing on this kind of thing early on in the game before shifting to that, you know, you start seeing that decision space close down as you learn how to really play and succeed at the game. Definitely. And I think that Puerto Rico, like we talked about earlier, is a perfect example of that. At the outset of the game, the strategic decision-making space felt much larger than it feels now as players have solved that meta. So a lot of games will solve this problem by having changing strategic opportunities, right? They'll add new content that will change, uh, give the players a new problem to solve while maybe keeping the tactical decision-making fairly similar. So I'm thinking of like Magic the Gathering is constantly adding new cards, which changes the strategic options for players or just strategic decisions that they might be able to make. That is Magic the Gathering is such a good example of what we're talking about because really, you know, they they put a new a new set of cards and it almost always results in what is essentially a solved meta. Mm-hmm. You know, in X amount of months or weeks or days <laughs> as <laughs> people uh hone in on what is the best strategy, what is the best deck. And and that's like one of the things that people really complain about with magic is how experienced, how smart, and how many people are trying to crack this puzzle all at once. You know, it feels futile to try and do it on your own when you could just copy whatever strategy is already shown to be successful, at least at the competitive level. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that maybe the greatest takeaway from this strategic versus tactical decision thinking paradigm within decision space too is 
the ability for decision spaces to change over time. Strategic ones can change as the, change as the game is explored overall, and tactical decision-making can really change. Strategic can too, but tactical very much over the course of play, right? In Azul, your tactical decisions change dramatically based on the tiles that you have or the tiles that you've already played. So on any given turn, your decision space can really shift and I think a lot of times when we're talking, when people t use the term decision space or when we use the term decision space, we're talking about an average of the decision space snapshots that might occur over a course of a game. Or at one specific decision point. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right. So I think that's just a really another important note, right? We're talking, again, you know, we're talking about one moment. So, you know, the decision in Carpe Diem about which uh, fountain card you're taking is small, whereas uh, many of those other decisions in the game feel much bigger. Definitely. Do you want to, should we hop onto this next, uh, yeah. next way that we can look at them? So well, take, okay. it, take it, take it. Okay, I'm just interested. And this is a question for you because one thing that I think really impacts how I feel about yeah. you know my experience of choice when I'm playing game uh -huh. is the mental bandwidth it requires to parse out what my viable options are. So let me just give you a hypothetical situation or two hypothetical scenarios. All right, there could be two games and in each game, I have three viable decisions. In game mm. A, it takes me five seconds to figure out what those three choices are. Game B, it takes me three minutes to work through the the you know different steps and resources and you know it can exchange rates in order to come up with those three turns. Do you think those decision spaces are the same size or different? I think that they are that's a really good question. I think this plays into the idea of shifting perception, but I think that in this hypothetical game B, which takes five minutes to get to the three viable options, that there's probably lots of choices that don't represent real decisions making it take that long. Whereas game A probably is presenting three or maybe four choices, three of which you have a real decision between. So I think game B probably really does have a greater decision space for new players that will shrink over time. What do you think? I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Um, I, and I think that's really interesting. What we're learning or what I'm taking away from this conversation is that, Same. you know, the the shift in how decision space operate over time is maybe even a bigger factor than I was thinking yeah. uh, 30 minutes ago when we started talking. But yeah, I mean, in a lot of games, I mean, just to maybe make that hypothetical clearer, you know, in game A, it could be option one is getting two gold coins and option B is getting two uh, meeple workers, you know, whereas in option B, it could be the same end result. But, you know, the instead of just going to a space and getting that reward, it's, you know, I have to move here and spend three coins to activate this, which gives me four workers, which I can then go take over here to exchange. And in the end, you know, I will result in getting this amount more. Um, and I think, you know, doing that mental problem solving, you know, is something that's definitely a learned skill. The more you play that game, the quicker you'll be able to do uh, th those equations. Uh, and so over time, 
those two decision spaces will start to feel the same or at least much closer uh, than they would the first time you're confronting that problem. Yeah. And from a, a game design perspective, that's really interesting because that experience that a player, a player playing game A with those decisions is going to have a really different experience than the player playing game B with those, with that, with those decisions and the space. Ultimately, they'll end up looking about the same in terms of tactical and strategic decision making, but the experience and path that players have to getting there is going to shape their perception of the game. So in terms of a tool, that's really interesting. I'll throw this hot take out there, which we don't have to go down this road, but I would argue that game B would be higher rated on BGG. <laughs> Definitely. I, I, I totally agree. And, uh, yeah, food. I guess food for thought, right? Like in some ways, games can play the magic trick of the magic trick that Carpe DMs not wasn't willing to play for players who listened to our last episode of this is grokable in five games, but you won't know it because you're only going to play it four times. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I and, and I'm not trying to be, you know, too reductive here. I would probably enjoy the puzzle of game B more because it Definitely. feels more like, oh, okay, like I've figured out this and my reward is getting two coins as opposed to like, I'll go to this space and get two coins or I'll take this action and get two coins. It's like I had to, you know, put in the work and now I'm getting a reward. Totally. And I am i wasn't trying to be negative either. I think that there's great merit for games of all shapes and sizes. And there's a reason why people like playing games a few times and experiencing those new games. And a lot of it is because they like the perception of those really big decision spaces and making simple games that are easy to pick up and play with really massive decision spaces that stay massive is really tough. But making them that seem massive and are massive for a while it's it's maybe easier to learn those games, play them, and then move on and find something new, right? Yeah, right. I, I agree. You know, like in my mind, like the gold standard of board game design is minutes to learn and a lifetime to master. Yeah. How many games have ever pulled that off? But, you know, where it's like the more you play, the more the decision space grows. But yeah, I don't know. I don't want to say that the decision space growing is always better either. And we'll get into that later. So let's maybe we don't want to go down that road too much right now. That sounds good. I, I think staying, I think that road could maybe even be a podcast in and of itself. Totally. All right. So one more thing here on the texture of decision space. I'm really interested in how random and unknown elements affect the decision space. Do you have any initial thoughts on that? Yes, I have. I have lots of thoughts on this one. I think that um, it, you've brought up that there's lots of different types of randomness. And I think that we shouldn't dive too deeply on the different types of randomness in games here. But I do think the different types of randomness can really affect decision spaces generally. And in general input randomness, right, a, a random event happens, then the player gets to make decisions based on those random events. Um, will potentially lead to larger decision spaces than output randomness. A player makes a choice, then the consequences of that choice are randomly decided, right? Because your ability to have viable or consequential decisions are probably, there's a ceiling when you have a lot of output randomness in a game, potentially. Yeah, 
Potentially, but at the same time, like if there's randomness in a game, there's math behind it, right? Yes. And there's, you know, odds and statistics that like could be worked out to give a player an edge, you know, however infinitesimally small in some cases. So I just think that's, you know, that's really interesting. I Can I respond to that really quickly, Jake? I think that one potential pitfall of people thinking through decision spaces is that there might be some sort of uh, perception that only games with really big decision spaces can be interesting because those are the only games that are going to keep you engaged for a long time. But I think there are potentially games with fairly small decision spaces that have randomness, a, a fair degree of randomness that stay interesting for a really long time because it's fun to see how those games play out. So one thing that I'm thinking of is like, so in fighting games, I don't want to go too deep on this, but let's say- We're going to talk about fighting games on this podcast, probably a lot, (laughs) but people will hear about that later. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess let's go the most basic form, rock, paper, scissors. Rock, paper, scissors isn't a super deep or super interesting game, but it's a game that you can play- for a long time because the consequences and the randomness keep it somewhat interesting every loop. I'm not saying, I'm not advocating for everyone to go out and play rock, paper, scissors. There's a great implementation on Yukata, by the way. <laughs> is there really? No, there's not. <laughs> no, I would, that'd be hilarious. There is, I will, okay, really quickly, quick pitch for rock, paper, scissors. If you're ever bored and want to play with a friend, take take a game of rock paper scissors and put a little marker between you and the other person for rock paper and scissors when someone throws and wins with a, an element move the marker towards them to win the game of rock paper scissors you have to win with an element twice in a row oh my god that's so awesome i, I love that <laughs> but that's a game with a super small decision space that's super interesting and fun and i've had this is embarrassing to admit but i met up with friends a while ago to play games pre-pandemic like two years ago and we started randomly just playing rock paper scissors that way and we probably played it for 45 minutes it was so fun so i think that goes back to there can be really small decision space games that are really interesting because of randomness yeah the last point I wanted to make on on randomness is that I think that, again, this is a place where the larger board game hobby hive mind um, comes down on the side of thinking that games with more randomness have a smaller decision space. Um, and I just don't think that is necessarily true in a one-to-one manner. I, I would agree that as you know, if you push it all the way to the extreme where there's, you know, so much randomness in a game that, you know, choice doesn't matter, then of course, you know, the decision space is small. Uh, I'm trying to think of the game that's just like pure randomness. Yeah. Okay. Here's a game. It's a toy game. So it's not a real game, but uh, we both roll a die and whoever has the higher die wins. Right. Yeah. Okay. But to have a choice there, be like, okay, do you want to roll the red or blue die? (laughs) Sure, sure. Yeah. And that's a zero decision space game. Right. Right? So, yeah. So, when you take to that logical extreme, yes. But I I have found that, you know, even when you're playing a game that's very random, there's a game called Claim It on Yukata that I play Mm -hmm. a lot. 
Um, that's the very much a dice rolling game, uh, push your lot game. And I've just been pleasantly surprised. It's definitely not the deepest game in the world by a far sight. And it is a small decision space game. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But I've been impressed over repeated plays of that game. I've probably played it 20 times now because it's just so quick and easy to play uh, and pleasant every time that I've just been surprised. And, you know, even though it was a very small decision space and it still is, it's continued to grow and just feel a little bit bigger after repeated plays, whereas decisions that in my first few plays I didn't think were decisions at all, uh, mm. I'm now realizing are. You know, so it's just interesting in being able to, you know, you're never going to give yourself with perfect play, you know, you're still not guaranteeing yourself a win in the same way that, you know, in chess, you know, whoever plays better wins 100% of the time. This is not like that at all, but it's still interesting. And I find, you know, just as much enjoyment in trying to just push the odds ever so slightly in my favor. And I think that even when you're moving the odds a small bit, there can be a very robust decision space there. Definitely. I have a question for you, Jay, okay. tied to what you're saying. Do you think that there's any argument for saying, making the claim that games with small decision spaces, uh, for the players to enjoy those games, to like them, to positively want to go back to them, uh, there's a greater burden for those games to have strong, elicit strong emotional responses from the players, and that games with uh, perceived really much larger decision spaces have to... Um, elicit strong intellectual responses from the players or sort of like stronger intellectual stimulation? You know, there are a lot of variables in that question. That's, yep. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of hard. I would say just my gut instinct is that you're right. And, and when you think about small decision-based games that are popular, I think a lot of them do rely on dice rolling and push your luck and that kind of thing, which are inherently emotional uh mm -hmm. mechanics to me um so so i think i think so i don't know if you know i don't know if the onus is on the game or if that's just but i, I think maybe the market bears out what you're saying sure sure do you have more thoughts on information fog and and random elements in in decision spaces before we move on to throw back to that very first uh definition or that we heard yeah. from the artificial intelligence uh conference i just think it's really interesting that they're grappling with the the same thing and include you know that in each decision like you know uncertain or in the decision space uncertainty plays a huge factor and that can happen in a variety of ways right in their scenarios you know how big is the fire uh and and then like and what percent of the fire trucks will get there and when and i think you know it's interesting as we think about random elements of course there's you know random chance which we've been talking about a lot like dice rolls or what card you're going to draw but also the it, there's uncertainty caused by what your opponents do that can often impact the decision space in a really interesting way as well definitely I think random's a perfect word for that, honestly. And yeah, if you play with my friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, I feel like one interesting other consequence, interesting factor here, excuse me, is the randomness as a mental fog or unknown. I think the goes back in the definitions, goes back to that word consequence, right? 
or in your definition, viable. Uh, too much randomness can lead to non-consequential decisions. If there's enough randomness in a game, there's potential for players to not understand the consequences of their decisions. And that's going to have a decision spacing, decision space shrinking. I don't want to use the same word, but consequence on the game overall. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting too, because I think there's a difference there in how we as players perceive that when that's happening, Um, you know, because it doesn't necessarily, I think this is going to be a really good segue. Just pat myself on the back. Um, (laughs) We as players perceive it differently when the decision space is so big that we can't follow it through to the impact on the game state. Then we perceive a game like Azul or Quix or claim it as a small decision space where it's like, you know, there's some random, it's it's easy to see what we're going to do is going to happen on the board, but then that's going to be heavily impacted by a random element. Those might be similar, you know, in terms of how the decision space actually is, but they're perceived completely differently in the play of the game. Definitely. Okay. So that brings us to a question that, I think will be interesting to play with, which is, do you think that there's any value in trying to put a decision space on a scale? So we could call it one to a hundred with one being no choices, right? You know, Candyland to 100 being, I think in your words, unfathomably large decision space. Uh, Do you think there's any value to that? Uh, And I'm thinking about our show, right? As we continue to talk about games, uh, do you think it might be helpful to listeners if we're saying, yeah, this decision space, pretty small, I'd probably call it a 12 or, you know, do you think... Do you think that's a worthwhile exercise? I definitely think that it's worthwhile, and I think it could become a really interesting shorthand to talk about the games, especially so long as everyone coming into the discussion understands that rating a decision space of a game being low doesn't necessarily mean that it's not an interesting game or a fun game to play. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that just goes back to the core of this. Like, all of this, to me, comes back to it's the experience, that choice. You know, so... It can be a really interesting 12 or it could be like a really brain dead 90, Uh, you know, or, you know, I just for whatever reason, like my brain has fun when I'm doing when I'm choosing this and it doesn't have fun when I'm choosing this other thing, you know, so I think you you have to separate those for sure. Okay, but I think there's a problem with the scale in that in my mind, as I was thinking about this, I think that the spectrum of decision space might be more of a bell curve than uh, a linear progression. And by that, I mean, it starts out as, you know, one Candyland, no choices. But mm-hmm. when you get to the other side of the scale, the unfathomably large choice, right? You have decision space. There's, you know, hundreds of choices with, you know, thousands of sequencing permeations, you know, that you can't hope to really understand the impact to such a great degree that it almost becomes no decision again. Hmm. Okay. I'm trying to understand and think through, <laughs> think through a game that would be like this. So let me go to, as an example, I'll, I'll say what I think you're getting at. And I'm really intrigued by this idea. So I want us to keep teasing it out. So I think chess is a game of very, very, very large decision space. It starts fairly small. So chess is a game where I've gotten back into it a little bit because of the Queen's Gambit. Uh, I assume- Are you going to explain how to play chess? (laughs) Have as well. Yeah, so I'm not going to. But 
I've learned it recently in revisiting chess a little bit that at grandmaster level, games of chess are routinely played where no other chess games that are recorded, right? So in earnest chess competitions have ever been played in that shape before, really often, really, really often, right? So to say that again, then even though the start of chess is fairly predetermined, kind of like Puerto Rico, there's certain openings that you mostly will play uh, and you play out those openings with some variations. The game state, because it's so large, quickly gets to there being uh, a completely unique game state. But Jake, you're saying the decisions could feel so massive, right? So like chess's decision tree is huge and you don't necessarily know the consequences of your decision but those consequences still matter. So I feel like it's not necessarily a bell curve because even if the players can't understand the consequences of their choices, the choices do still have consequences that they have to discover. And when you're dedicated to playing a game with a game decision space this large, you care about the consequences enough that you're willing to tease out what could seem like non-decisions, non-important decisions, and then figure out why those matter and then keep exploring. Okay, so here's what I'll say. I agree with you about chess. Uh, To me, like chess and even maybe to a larger extent, I don't know anything about it, but Go, I understand, Mm -hmm. is kind of like the ultimate decision space game. And I would put those probably near the top of this hypothetical bell curve that we're creating um, or that I have in my mind. But I'm thinking about it more in like the hypothetical level. Uh, and, and when you think about like the game, this is going to get, you know, really philosophical, really fast. <laughs> but okay, but think about like, try and bear with me. Think about the game of like your life as something that is so vast a decision space that it almost doesn't feel like a game. Like, you, you know, like I could sell all my earthly possessions and start you know, walking around the world. I could, you know, quit my sure. job and and go do something else. You know, I could uh, sell my car. I could, you know, go buy, spend all my money on lottery tickets. Like th- there's all these different things I could do. And probably none of those would, you know, <laughs> increase my happiness or whatever output I want to achieve with my life. Um, but uh, those are all things theoretically one could do. But like, all you have so many infinite options every day when you wake up and they're all unknowable what the outcome will be so you kind of end up just doing the thing that you always do and living your life and going to work and eating your breakfast and uh you know yada 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 so to me like something like that is approaching the end of the bell curve where the decision space is approaching small again Mm, because you're saying because Jake, you're saying that those aren't viable decisions selling all of your worldly possessions and, and just starting wandering around a choice you could make a decision you could make isn't a viable decision i'm saying, Is that what you're saying? no i'm saying those i in, in this hypothetical those are viable decisions that one could make uh, but the output is totally unknowable like what that will mean and what that will and you know and many people have done that type of thing before you know and 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 maybe they were better for it and maybe not so i don't know i'm I'm just saying like at the hypothetical level like you know and maybe life itself is a bad example (laughs) (laughs) maybe it takes us too philosophical In the unfathomable toy game version. Right. You know, like you could picture like a board that you have to put on your floor because it 
is so massive. And there's 1,200 worker placement spots that all do something different. And you get 17 actions on your turn. You know, is that a game with a big decision space or not? Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, I think it is, but I'm not interested in playing. <laughs> I think I completely understand what you're saying, but I disagree about the bell curve aspect because I, th- I think going back to... This so much ties into the consequences and viability. Right. Right? Yeah, I think that's my argument. Is like, you have to have, for a decision space to feel large to me, like, I think I need to have some sense in, like, I know what the result of this will be. Like, I'm understanding the impact I'm making. Because when I don't, I just feel like I'm doing random stuff. Yeah, Totally. I feel like you, we've. this is an awesome question because for me, this has really split the hairs on the difference between the a viable decision and decisions of consequence because I thought that players had to understand the cons- consequences. Oh my gosh. The consequences. <laughs> this is like, it's like crashing and burning. It's one word. And last episode too, I think. Oh my gosh! What I let's come up with a synonym for you next time. Jeez, um, I thought players had to understand fully the consequences of their decisions to have them be viable options. But I'm not positive that in games with high randomness from other players' choices, that's necessarily true. Because I think chess approaches this right. Um, it's a game of really large decision space where you don't know what the other player is going to do. Um, and you have so many options that at the end of that decision, you cannot understand fully the consequences of your choice. You probably do, but not necessarily. Because you can track for like 30 space, you know, actions, but not that 31st thing that happens afterwards. That's a mystery. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm I'm totally tracking what you're saying in the in the full the full toy game hypothetical of unfathomability. It goes back to being really small. I just feel like that's those sort of games are maybe it's that those sort of games are so rare. It's hard for me to see what it would look like. Yeah, that's yeah, and I don't I don't think I've played any of them, but I think there are you know some games out there that people have that do exist that are just like so absurdly big and take like weeks to play. And, you know, I don't know. Sure. It's like campaign for North Africa or something. I don't know. There's, yeah. there's some like legendary, like massive game, uh, which I maybe is approaching something what I'm talking about, but probably I will concede. And like, for the purpose of our show, like we can stop the scale at the top of the bell curve, which is probably the biggest decisions of games that anyone is interested in playing anyway. Mm. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And I'm excited to do this in the future. I think it will be really interesting uh, and tough to figure out where on the spectrum different games might fall. Yeah. And we might be <laughs> realizing the next episode or two, like, okay, wait, this doesn't work at all. But it'll be interesting to see how that plays into uh, what we're talking about. Definitely. All right. Let's end this episode with a couple recommendations each about one game or a couple games that we love with a very small decision space and a couple games that we love that have a big decision space. Great. Do you want to go first? I would love to. That's so... In in talking about small, uh, I think a game, a small decision space game that I love is No Thanks. Have you played No Thanks, Jake? I haven't. I, I want to though. Okay. Do you know how the game works? Remind me. It's a card game with cards valuing one to ninety nine, I believe, uh, and we, you're trying to 
you're trying to have the lowest number of points. I'm trying to make sure I remember this right. But basically, whenever a card comes to you, you can you have a set of chips and you can say, no, thanks, I don't want it and spend a chip to pass it along. And if you get a run of cards, so if you had, say, uh, 37, 38 and 39, you would only get 37 points and you're trying to avoid points again. So the decision space is really small. It's just sort of yes, no, spend a chip, don't have to take a card, and you're trying to decide which cards are the right cards to take. Yeah, that's a perfect example. And I, I haven't played that game, but I know a lot of people love it. Okay, so my I'm going to do two others because I'm a cheater. I think The Mind is also a small decision space game that I love. Oh, that's a great example. Awesome. The You really, the only decision you make is how long to wait, which I think a lot of these small decision space games are a lot about how you spend time so the mind is like that and no thanks is also like that because your chips that you're spending uh, are a finite resource so you're trading those are like think of them as units of time that you're trading to get more information uh, and then the final one is ink and gold or, or diamant uh, which is a press your luck game that where by bruno Fiduti and alan r moon i believe uh, where you're also trying to time the game and it, it kind of feels a little bit like blackjack cards are coming out the longer you stay the greater chance you're going to get rewards but you could be burned if you stay in this uh exploring this temple for too long and you just make a binary decision do i stay or do i leave i haven't played that one either but I know oh it's I so good uh, I'm, I'm glad you love the mind because i do too and that's a bit controversial anyway uh for me two small space decision space games i love the first one is quicks to me this is kind of like the quintessential roll and write game it's just so simple but it's really satisfying and fun the way it works is uh somebody rolls uh, a handful of dice and then everybody gets to use mm. those dice to uh, cross off one of uh, a row of numbers on their board and you have four different rows of numbers and the trick is you you can cross off any number but once you've crossed that off you can't cross any previous numbers off and at the end of the game you'll get points based on how many you've crossed off in each row so if the first number that you are presented with is a four maybe you take that uh because but you're foregoing your ability to get the two and the three in that row and it's really small decision but it's really interesting it really matters you know what other people at the table are doing uh just a very nice game um have you played quicks i haven't but i I really want to play quicks yeah the the second one is actually was gonna say something else but you talking just there made me think of a game that I absolutely love that fits in this category, uh, which is Liar's Dice. Have you yes. played Liar's Dice? Yes, yeah. I used to play this a lot in undergrad with my buddies, and it's great because all you need is just a bunch of random dice and, and some cups. But yeah, so that's the game where you, you roll the dice and hide them. And you go around the table wagering how many of a certain number of dies there are. So, you know, so I could say, you know, Brendan, I think there are three fives between us. And you would have the choice of saying there are three sixes or going up in the number of dice. So you could say there's four of any of, you know, one through six. And it's a super small decision, but it's really interesting. And I think going back to uh, something we've, we've talked about in this conversation, it works because it's so dramatic. Yes. Because <laughs> then you you can call my blood by just lifting up your cup and then every everything is revealed. Uh, so it's such a fun game. Yeah, game of high emotions for sure. Yeah. I love Liar's Dice. Yeah. Okay, so large decision space games. Do you want to take? Do you want to go first on these? I'll go first. Yeah. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is one of my very favorite games, and it's a, a feast for Odin. Um, and this is a big decision space, mainly because there's like I don't know fifty <laughs> different uh, worker placement spaces in the game. 
So it's basically a, the small little brother of that hypothetical game I had presented earlier <laughs> in the podcast. But uh, it's really fun because, you know, even though there are what seems like just a completely preposterous amount of choices in your game, uh, they're grouped in a way that makes it sort of parsable. And no matter what you do, it's really satisfying because you're always getting some cool reward. You're always getting uh, the a polyomino thing that you're bringing back to your personal board to fill in space and, and get different awards. So uh, it's just, it's really a masterclass for me uh, in, in taking something that's really a big decision space and, and making it, you know, something that is easy to engage with. That's not exactly the word I'm thinking about. Uh, it makes it approachable. Yeah. Awesome. World first, someone called... Feast for Odin, the little brother to some game. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. Uh, so I have not played a Feast for Odin, but I'm curious, do you think that it would, do you think there's enough granularity between options in that game, Jake, that you would always feel like you have viable decisions? Or do you think that there's a solvable game state in the game? There might be a mechanic I don't understand that would make this an obvious. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I am not very good at this game. So I, I've, it's a it's like a big experience. Like I kind of think of it as like the the big experience Euro game in my collection. And I only got it last year, so I haven't had I've played it like twice with people and then twice solo. So I'm not I'm certainly not the authority on uh if the game can be solvable. But like for sure. me, it's it's just been like an experience that I've let wash over me. So I was actually yeah. thinking about like perhaps this could have been a game that's almost like coming back on that side of the bell curve a little bit. Sure. Because there's so many different things and everything feels viable. So you just kind of yeah. like go down a path and enjoy. Awesome. Uh, okay, the other one I, I said is a game that I've absolutely been loving and playing a ton on Yukata, and that is Underwater Cities. And what makes this game so cool is the way uh, and the decision space so rich and big is uh, the way you take an action on your turn is you pick one of three cards in your hand and uh, the, the cards come in three different colors. Uh, and then you pair that with one of, I think, 15. There's the, the action spaces are variable depending on the number of players. Uh, but there's three different columns of actions in those three colors. So the trick is if the card you play matches an action space of the same color, then you get to do both things. Awesome. So what makes the decision space so big is that not only are you, you know, you have the multiplication of the action cards in your hand and the action spaces and, and all those different ways you could pair them up. But even once you've decided, uh, there's oftentimes a pretty interesting decision in the order. Are you going to do the thing on the card first or the action space first? And you get to choose that. And that can really matter. And then just like, what order are you going to try and play out the cards in your hand? It's really rich and, and it's a, a really fun game. That's one we have to get on the show at some point because I'm very interested in Underwater Cities. And that sort of layered mechanic sounds really cool. Yeah. I bet you really dig it. So my large decision space games, uh, interestingly, I'm going to say Welcome To for one of them. So Welcome To is a roll and write game where the, it's a technically a flip and write game, actually. There's a deck of cards that gets flipped up, uh, and then you are arranging cities in front of you. And this is a, a pretty random game, but, but there's just so many different ways you could potentially lay out um, your your cities and your spaces. And it's just so fun and rewarding to watch 
how the sort of different options play out. That's really intriguing. I've played that game once and the experience I had was certainly one that felt small. So it's just interesting to know that, you know, with repeated plays, that's a, that's another game that, would you say that, like, you know, the decision space has grown for you or did you think it was big from the jump? Definitely has grown for me. Okay. I think that that comes down to the perceived viable options for sure. Because at the start, everything definitely feels the same. Yeah. So, yeah. When I Because when I played, I, I was... I ended up winning and I was like, oh, I feel like I just got lucky. And they're like, well, we all had the exact same cards and options. It's like, yeah, but the path Mm -hmm. that I started going down just like ended up working out with the cards that came up. So I I never sought it out again after that. But that makes me want to give it another try. I think, yeah, that's that goes back to the your sort of if you don't understand the consequences, it can feel really small. Yeah. As a player. Totally. My other big decision space game that I don't know that this is as big at the get-go, as some of the games you've mentioned, but I'm going to mention it as an anyway, and that's Key Flower. Not Key Forge, but Key Flower. This is a, a Euro-style worker placement game that has a really unique auction system for tiles that you add to your cities. Those tiles, uh, as your cities grow, give you more and more options. And then you can also play your workers to other people's spaces, So, but you do it by giving up your, your workers forever. Um, and the so the decision space actually starts pretty small and then explodes as viable options become available. So that's a, a super fun one for me. I, I think that's probably a medium large decision space game, but it's one where it really, really grows very quickly. So yeah, I, I, I want to play that again. I have to say, when you said key something, you know, our basically our entire listenership right now is key forge players. They all probably just got really excited and then just like dash <laughs> their hopes. Yeah. I would love to play uh, Key Flower again. Yeah, because to me, that one fell on the other side where it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much going on here in this first play that I, that's just interesting. I, I can't wrap my head around it. So I'm just doing random things. <laughs> totally. I'll play Key Flower with you anytime. I, I adore this game. Everyone in my life is like, oh, Brennan, no, we're not playing Key Flower anymore. And I'm like, please, please. <laughs> Let's do it. I, I'll, I'll take you up on that. Awesome. All right. Is that it for you? Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it on decision space games. I want to really quickly say, I hope uh, listeners have not lost all respect for me hearing me say that I played rock, paper, scissors with with a group of friends for 40 minutes and I'm a a small decision space games fiend. When you said that, I was like, well, we're not going to get into fighting games now. And you're like, but there is this game called rock, paper, scissors. You're like, oh, here we go. All my credibility out the window. (laughs) No, not at all. But yeah, okay. I had a a lot of fun on this discussion. Uh, We got a little heady there. Uh, Had to bring in some literature, but I hope that some some folks listening found value in it. Uh, What do you think? I thought this discussion was wonderful, Jake. I feel like I learned a lot about decision spaces in general. And I, I wonder if this might be a topic that we revisit at some point as well. I think there's even more room than what we've discussed. And I hope uh, for any listeners out there, if you have thoughts about decision spaces, maybe angles we didn't take, let us know on Twitter. We, ha- we have a Twitter now at Decision Spa. Uh, you can come and get lavish with us and, and really pamper yourself thinking about decisions and games. But reach out to us. Let us know what you think. That's Decision SPA. And we are desperate for feedback as we're still trying to figure out what exactly we want to do this show, how we can add the most value uh, to to y'all in uh, your life. So let us know what you think so far and how you think we can improve it. That would be amazing. Next week, we are going to be covering... 
the Tom Lehman Tableau Builder new on Board Game Arena, Res Arcana. So if you're interested in, in kind of joining along with us, I would encourage you to, to jump on and, and play it for free there. Yeah, definitely take a look. And if you've never heard of Res Arcana, but you have heard of Race for the Galaxy, same designer and people go wild. All right, well, this has been another episode of Decision Space. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, y'all. You are now exiting the Decision Space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm-hmm.